Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to uh, complete part 2 of the passage we dealt with a couple weeks ago. Where Peter is uh, addressing the saints that are suffering for the cause of Christ. They are going through various afflictions and trials. are going through a fiery ordeal that he speaks of back up in verse 12. And he's, we used the uh, metaphor last time of Peter being somewhat like a medic that's out on the battlefield uh, ministering to the suffering believers that have been afflicted by various trials, also by persecution in some contexts. And he's trying to build into them so that they can live a faithful, godly life in spite of the opposition of the world in which they live. So we'll be in uh, looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to uh, go ahead and start in verse 12, since this really starts the context. And uh, I'll read down through verse uh, 19. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And again, it's my honored to read for you the inspired Word of God, so please listen with reverence and with faith. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Last time we uh, looked at this passage, we saw that Peter gave several uh, instructions to those who are suffering. They should, number one, understand God's purpose in their suffering, oops, to realize that the, the purpose of their suffering is to test them and is to test them to sanctify them. And that's the purpose for why God sends those sufferings into our life. Secondly, when we're going through suffering or persecution or trials, we should rejoice amazingly in that, because we are being identified and have fellowship with Christ in His suffering, not for atonement or adding to His atonement, but by way of imitating and being identified with Him. We have fellowship with Christ 
and with the Spirit of glory and of God who rests on us. Because it's evidence that the Spirit of God is bringing out Christ enough in our life that the world has opposition to us. And that should be something we should rejoice in, that the Spirit of God has given me enough of a witness and a testimony in the world that there is pushback against the Gospel that sometimes we become the objects of. So it's something to rejoice in because of our fellowship with Christ and with the Spirit of the living God. And then thirdly, He's already told them to look ahead to the coming of Christ Because when He is revealed in glory, then we will rejoice with exultation. A far greater joy than we could ever experience in this life. So from there, we now pick it up in verse 19. And the Apostle Peter says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. It's interesting that he has to warn them against committing murder and being a thief. You think, well, you know, that's just common sense. But I think it's uh, it's acknowledging, obviously, that we still have a sin nature. And the commandments of God are still applicable to us. They're still binding upon us. And thou shalt not murder. And thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And all those are still important for us to keep in mind. And remember David, a man after God's own heart. He could commit murder. He could commit adultery. So even in this, he's acknowledging that when we're saved, we're not glorified yet. And so it can be a battle, but he's warning them Don't let any of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. An evildoer is more of just a general term that can cover all kinds of evil activity. Or as a troublesome meddler. This is a word that's a a very uh, unique word because this is the only place it's found anywhere in any Greek literature up until this time. It's the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It's not found in the Septuagint. It's not found in any of the secular Greek writings up until this point in time. It's a what we call a hypoxagomenon. It's the only, one occurrence of this word. So sometimes we have a difficulty in, in understanding its meaning. The next time it occurs is in the second century in some secular writings. But most believe that if you break the word down literally, it has something to do with being a troublesome meddler. Uh, some scholars think it refers to being an, an embezzler of some type. But probably someone that's just sticking their nose into other people's business where it doesn't belong. Someone who's just uh, meddling in a way that creates conflict and things like that. Something along those lines. It's probably not as serious as murder or being a thief, but it's still something that Peter says, look, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer for your own sin. I mean, if you suffer for your sin, then you're only getting what you deserve. So don't uh, don't suffer as a sinner. If you're going to suffer, do it because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he emphasizes to them. And then next, he says in verse 16, that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, 
but is to glorify God in this name. So now he's emphasizing and stressing to them that if you suffer through persecution for the name of Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, don't be ashamed of it, but glorify God in it. The word Christian here means simply one who's a follower of Christ. It originated probably by non-Christians trying to think of a name to give to the believers. And since they were followers of Christ and preaching Christ and living for Christ, then it fits that they were called Christians, followers of Christ. And so what Peter is emphasizing to them is don't be ashamed of Christ. You may suffer for His name. Don't be ashamed of it. Now I bet in the back of Peter's mind, I think he was probably somewhat haunted by his own failure in this regard. Because remember when the Lord was arrested and brought into Caiaphas' courtyard and John the Apostle had gotten in because he knew Caiaphas and he got Peter into the courtyard and then it wasn't too long before around different places he began to deny the Lord. He was ashamed. He was fearful of being identified with Christ. And he denied the Lord three times. But if we're ashamed of Christ, as was Peter, so he can identify, he, he certainly failed in this regard. But if we're ashamed of Christ and we're too much influenced by the values and the standards of the world, if I'm ashamed of saying that I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of Christ, then basically we love our stuff more than we love the Lord. These are things we always need to guard our hearts on. Some of the teachings of the Lord emphasize this in Mark 8. Remember Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And then Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It's a serious thing to deny the Lord, be ashamed of Him. Now I thank God that when we are guilty of that, we can repent and we can ask the Lord to forgive us and He will forgive us. But we pray for the grace that we won't do it again. Don't be ashamed of suffering as a Christian. Jesus had already taught His disciples in Matthew 5, You're the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're called to do. To be the light of the world. To be a witness for Christ. And to ask for grace that we might be a better witness for the Lord. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he told Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. So that's the challenge. Peter says, look, if you're suffering as a Christian, don't be ashamed. 
but rather glorify God. Glorify God that you have the privilege of taking the abuse of the world for the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Glorify God in this name. He exhorts them. Well, how do we glorify God in the midst of suffering? Well, we're, we're willing to suffer for His name. We're willing to take fire for His Gospel. We're willing to sacrifice and continue to serve Him even when we're suffering for His name. And we continue to love our enemies and we continue to pray for those who persecute us. We continue to regard Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure. That's how we glorify Him even though we're suffering or going through a myriad of trials that Peter mentioned in chapter 1. Various kinds of trials that can so discourage us. Well, we know that God's in control and we can glorify Him even in the midst of it by the way we persevere and endure the suffering or the trial. The Lord Jesus communicated to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So He's saying that when you're suffering, when you're out in the world, don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. Even if you suffer for it. But rather glorify God in that name. Offer the Gospel to those who are without Christ because they're the ones who need the forgiveness of their sins. And there's no other way to be forgiven than to come in faith to Jesus Christ because there is no other Savior but Him. We can't save ourselves. You can't make yourself good enough to be acceptable in God's sight. We are sinners. We deserve His wrath, His judgment. So don't be ashamed of Him. But let us live boldly for Him and seek to share His Gospel with others. Glorify His name. And why should we focus on glorifying God? Well, because judgment begins with us. In verse 17, Peter says, for it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the Gospel of God? So now Peter is saying this is why we shouldn't be ashamed of Christ. Why we need to glorify God is because we're being judged now. And unbelievers who do not accept the Gospel, they will be judged later. And so it's this whole concept of the judgment of God that he mentions here in verse 17. Well, what does he mean here that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God? Well, this is in the context of them going through trials and afflictions and going through persecutions for their faith. And I think Peter is referring to this as a form of God's judgment or discipline on the church. Now, this is not a judicial judgment. It's not that we're going to be punished for our sins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ has already washed us of all of our sins, forgiven us of all of our sins. So this is not a judgment of condemnation that we're experiencing from the hand of God. If anything, it would be His foreordained discipline that sometimes we can receive because of our sin. Sometimes it can be just the trials of life to purify us, to sanctify us. 
But that's the form of the judgment that has already begun with the household of God. It's a judgment that God controls. It's a judgment that He may employ the world to bring about upon us. In other words, a judgment may come from unbelievers as they judge us because of our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. God's in control of all of that and He uses it for our good and His glory. So it's not a penal judgment for believers at all. And again, we can understand that some of these things come upon us because of our sin. Some of it comes upon us because of our witness, our godly testimony to the world. And we come under the judgment of the world where the world will punish us and the world will arrest us and throw us into prison and torture us and in some places around the world today kill us. So the judgment has already begun for the household of God. And again, our God is totally in control of these things. We don't understand why all these things happen to us. But it's a part of His wise and holy counsel and the means He has chosen to make us more like Christ as we share in His sufferings and ultimately spend eternity with Him in glory. It's interesting how he refers to the church here as the household of God. The household of God literally is the house of God, uh, the temple. This is the very same word house that Peter has already used in chapter 2, verse 5, where he is referred to the church as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, i.e. a temple, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here he's referring to the church as the new covenant temple of the living God. And he says that judgment has started with God's temple, God's house, God's household. The people are made up of God's house and God's temple. And that's why some commentators think that Peter actually is thinking in terms of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Where in this passage, Malachi prophesies about the Lord who will suddenly come to His temple, here referring to the New Covenant church, and He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and purify them, refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And this is probably being fulfilled in the church now where the Lord comes to His household, His temple, His house, if you will, and is engaging and purifying us through the trials we go through, through the persecutions that we go through. And it's His means of purifying us to be that holy people of God. And possibly that's what is in Peter's mind as he refers to this uh, concept of the Lord coming and judgment beginning with the household of God. But notice he also mentions in verse 17 that if judgment, if it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God now, if it's designed to begin with us here and now, we're going through that, What's going to become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
Because much of our judgment comes from the world, but their judgment, their condemnation, will come from Almighty God Himself on the last day. What will become of them? What will be their outcome? Peter says. Well, it will not be good in any way you understand it. Notice in this verse, he he speaks of unbelief as not obeying the Gospel of God. You know, we normally think of unbelievers as just people who just don't believe the Gospel. They don't believe that Jesus Christ can save them or will save them. They never put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And we just think, well, it's unbelief. But it's more than that. It's more sinister than that. It's actually disobedience to God. Because God commands all men everywhere to repent so that they might be forgiven and receive the free gift of everlasting life. It's a command that the Gospel actually is preached. It's an invitation, but it's also a command. So to not believe in Jesus Christ is an act of disobedience to God. This disobedience comes from a heart which is in rebellion against God. A heart that is engaging in spiritual mutiny against the King of Heaven and its attempt to make our own selves God. Well, I don't need You, God. I don't need forgiveness. Nothing's going to happen to me. And that's the delusion that unbelievers live with. Peter in verse 18 adds some more words to describe those who are disobedient to God and not believing the Gospel. In verse 18, he refers to them as godless and sinners. Godless means they're ungodly. They're devoid of reverence for God. They're impious in their attitude and conduct. And to be a sinner means that they have positively violated and broken the commandments of God. They're willfully devoted to the practice of evil. So all of this is mixed in with them not obeying the Gospel of God by repenting and believing in Christ alone. The reason for this is by nature, unbelievers, it's hard for them to see themselves as sinners. It's very difficult because by and large, our nature thinks we're really pretty good people in general. And we only look at ourselves from our own inward perspective rather than how God sees us. And so it's very difficult. It's very hard for unbelievers to see themselves as sinners. I like to say we all have a, by nature a black belt in self-defense. That if anyone comes up and accuses us of sin, well then we defend ourselves. We've got a black belt. We're good at that. We can defend attacks. Well, it's not my fault. It's their fault. They did it, not me. No, it's not as bad. No, you don't understand. I know I'm, I'm okay. I'm right. I'm in the right. I'm just in this matter. And we quickly, because of our own pride and self-righteousness, defend ourselves. And that's why it's so hard for us to even admit that I'm a sinner before a holy God. Well, the truth is, unbelievers are sinners. And they're in over their heads and they don't know it. Even if an unbeliever sees their sin, it's hard for them to see that they really deserve the judgment of God for their sin. Their hearts are deceived and they think that they're really not that bad and God really isn't that mad. 
So when they die, he'll grade on the curve. And yeah, I'm a, basically a good person. I do a few bad things, but he'll grade on the curve and I'll get to heaven because I'm basically a good person. But that is not what the Bible teaches. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good, not even one. And the unbeliever has a hard time seeing their sin, and even if they acknowledge that they do some bad things, that God's going to hold them accountable for their sin. It's hard for an unbeliever to think about dying. Standing before God as their judge when they could have had God as their Savior. But they turned away from Him. And it's hard for unbelievers to think about dying and one day standing before God and having all of their sins exposed before a holy God, before His holy law. Thoughts, sins, words, sins, actions, sins. They don't want to think about that there's a payday someday. And that day is coming. It's hard for unbelievers to grasp the punishment that they deserve for their sins. So Jesus had to teach clearly on this doctrines oftentimes in His public ministry that those who turn away from Him and refuse to come to Him in repentance and faith, they'll experience a weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and eternal separation from God forever where they have to pay for their sins. Our sufferings in this life are short-lived. Theirs will be eternal. The most they can do to us in this life is kill our body. They cannot kill our soul. But God will cast both body and soul of unbelievers into hell forever. Peter asked this question, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the Gospel of God? He doesn't get into it. He'll get into it more in Second Peter. The rest of the Scriptures fill in the blanks. But it's not good what awaits them. The best thing that an unbeliever can do is to acknowledge their sin and acknowledge that they deserve the judgment of God. That they should know that that day of judgment is coming. They will die. And then what will happen to them? They will stand before a holy God and they will give an account for all of their sins. And yet, today, Jesus Christ now offers the free gift of everlasting life to any sinner who turns from their sin and puts their faith totally upon Jesus Christ alone to forgive them. He will wash you of all of your sins. He will give you the free gift of everlasting life now to any sinner who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus. No one else again can save you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. No other religion can save you. No other religious leader can save you. And you cannot save yourself. Christ will save you if you come to Him in faith. And we would pray and hope that you would if there's any here who have not yet done that. In verse 18, Peter then confirms what he's just said by quoting from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. He gives a a free translation of it. 
But he says, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And it's interesting in this particular text that he's quoting in verse 18, it says in the Septuagint that it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved. And what does Peter mean by that as he's quoting it? It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Well, he's not talking about difficulty on our part, trying to become good enough to be saved or to try to merit our own salvation by good works. That's impossible. We cannot do that. The salvation he has in view, I think, is ultimately the the glorification in heaven and the difficulty that we go through now of the righteous being saved is the difficulty of just having to to live the Christian life in a world that hates us, where there's opposition, there's persecution, plus all the trials and difficulties of life. It's with difficulty that the righteous are saved. It's like what Paul said in Acts 14, verse 22, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The future final phase of our salvation. And to get there, for a believer in Jesus Christ, it is with difficulty. It is with a measure of suffering. It is with a measure of affliction. It's with a measure of things that happen to our life that we do not understand. We cannot comprehend. It's with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Not talking about our justification. Christ did everything we needed on the cross. He suffered the difficulty for us then. And when we put our faith in Him, then we are justified. But as we go through sanctification on our way to glory, well then, we go through sanctifying salvation with difficulty. I think that's what he has in mind. His readers certainly were were going through a lot of difficulties and trials and persecutions. And that's what he has in mind, I think. And then at the end of verse 18 again, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? They will be doomed. On that day when we are glorified, when we're ultimately saved in the future, in the presence of God and are completely glorified, the godless man and the sinner will be doomed at that point. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Today is the day. Come to Christ. And He'll forgive you and wash you and cleanse you and give you the hope of glory yet to come. And then Peter closes in verse 19 when he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. We suffer according to the will of God. Well, in one sense, all of our suffering as believers in Christ is according to God's sovereign will, and His decretive will. So in that sense, it's all under God's will. We understand that. Possibly in this context, Peter has in mind suffering according to the will of God and being obedient to the Lord, being a witness and having the persecution of the world. Both ideas probably are a part of this. But this is what he says to them. For those who are suffering according to the will of God, and all of your suffering is according to the will of God. There's none of it that's outside of the will of God, and you should find comfort in that. But for those who suffer according to the will of God 
shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So we're to entrust our souls to a faithful Creator. This is what Peter says we need to do when we're suffering. When we're being persecuted, when we're being afflicted because of our witness, because of our faith, or in a more general sense, just when we're going through any of the trials that Peter is also referencing throughout this letter. We need to continually be entrusting our souls into the hands of our God. The word to entrust here is actually a banking term. It means to make a deposit into a bank or into a neighbor's hands something valuable for safekeeping while you go on a trip or go off and do something. That's the way it was used in in the first century. And that's a good picture for what we are supposed to do when we go through suffering. We're to entrust our souls into the hands of God. Trust into the hands of another. Here in this case, it's to a faithful Creator. We're to trust Him with what we're going through. Whether it's a trial, whether it's a health problem, whether it's a financial problem, whether it's persecution, whatever our trials are, we entrust our souls into His hands. He is a faithful Creator. He's faithful. He is faithful to Himself and His promises to us. He will always be faithful to us in every way. He has promised that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He has promised to us that we are held secure in His hands and nothing or nobody can take us out of His hands. He is faithful to keep those promises. Nothing can separate us from His love. Nothing can separate us from one day being with Him forever in heaven. He is faithful so that everything that touches our life has a purpose and His purposes cannot fail. He is a faithful God. But Peter also references that He's our Creator. Which means He made all things, the heavens and the earth. Which means He controls all things. That He has sovereign authority over all things. All the demonic hosts, Satan, all of our enemies, all the circumstances of our life. He has sovereign control over all of these things, even over those who are persecuting them. And that nothing touches our life apart from God's plan, which for His people is always good, loving, holy, and purposeful. We can trust our souls into the hands of our faithful Creator. That's what Peter says we need to do at all times. And this is most important. It's always important. But it's especially meaningful for us when we don't understand what's going on in our life. When we can't make sense of what the circumstances are and why it's happening to me and why me now and why me in this context. And oftentimes, God doesn't reveal the answers to us. just like He didn't with Job in Job chapter 1 and 2. Job never understood why God alerted Satan to him and put the parameters around what Satan could or could not do to him. And Job just had to learn to entrust his soul 
and his body into the hands of God. You say, who else are you going to trust? You can't trust your own understanding because oftentimes we don't understand what's going on. Why do I think that my understanding is going to be the place I'm going to go to find strength and help? And I don't even understand, comprehend what God is doing oftentimes. If I trust in my own understanding, it's going to lead me into a mental fog. You can't trust your own heart because our heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. And who can understand it? can't trust your own heart. You can't trust your own strength. Well, I'll just gut through this. I'll get through on the other side. can't trust your own strength because it's frail and it'll fail you. Just like Peter who boasted to the Lord, well, we'll, we'll go to Jerusalem and even die with you, Lord. can't trust in your own strength. can't trust in your wealth. Your wealth can't buy you forgiveness of sins. Your wealth can't buy you health or happiness. Ultimately, can't trust in that. You really can't trust in ultimately in other people. Because to put your weight and trust on someone else is like leaning on a broken reed. It will break if you put your weight on it. There's only one rock. There's only one fortress. And that's the Lord our God. And Peter says, entrust your soul to Him. Nothing else. Nobody else. Entrust your soul to Him. You don't understand? Trust Him. You don't have the strength to persevere? Trust Him for it. You can't figure out what's going on? Trust Him. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And it's good for His people always. And it's for His glory always. We've got to learn to entrust ourselves into the hands of God. Peter can exhort us to do this because he's already given us Christ as an example of doing this. Remember back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Christ, he says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what Christ did. He entrusted Himself into the hands of His Father. And even on the cross, when He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me, but yet not as I will, but as You will. He entrusted His soul into the hands of His Father. And when we entrust our souls into the hands of a faithful God who will accomplish His good will for us, it may not guarantee that things are immediately going to get better. Matter of fact, things may stay the same. Things may get worse. Some may even be put to death. In other countries, people, brethren, who are entrusting their souls into the hands of God may even yet die for that. But ultimately, entrusting our hands, our souls into the hands of God doesn't mean that things are immediately going to improve or get better. But when we do that, it's an act of faith by which we stand firm and trust God for whatever the outcome is, whether it is 
life or death, whether it's recovery or continued suffering, we trust it into God's hands because we don't know His purpose. Only He does. And you trust Him. And whether they take our life or whether they set us free, it's in God's will and God's plan. We trust Him for that. And that's what it means to entrust our souls into the hands of God. Because we simply don't understand the infinite, immeasurable depth and breadth of the wisdom of God for our life. I love that story in Daniel 3 of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who made a golden image. And this image was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, made out of gold. And he called all the leaders of his kingdom to come to where this image had been erected. And whenever the music began to play, the lyre, the harps, all the instruments they had, then everyone must fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever did not fall down and worship the image, Nebuchadnezzar said, you will be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to that image. Nor would they worship it. So they were arrested and they were brought before the king. And he gave them one more opportunity before they would be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, those were fighting words. Because that provoked and stirred up their faith. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were not ashamed of their faith in the Lord. They would not obey Nebuchadnezzar. They would obey the Lord and worship Him only because they entrusted their souls into the hands of a faithful Creator. And they didn't know the outcome. They had faith that they thought He would deliver us out of Your hand, O King. But even if He does not, allowing a measure of uncertainty, we're still not going to obey You. And of course, we know what happened. He threw them into the furnace. He heated it up seven times hotter than before. Threw them in there. And lo and behold, who appeared with them? But a fourth individual. One who looked like the Son of of God. Probably the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And they were walking around having a great time. Talking and visiting. And even the soldiers that threw them in were consumed by the flames of the fire so hot. It had been stoked up. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar called them out and they came out. Their hair was not singed. Their clothes were not burnt. There wasn't even the smell of smoke on them at all. Because God in His miracle grace had chosen to preserve them in the midst of that. That's an example where entrusting our souls into the hands of God 
brought out a great deliverance. But there's no guarantee. Many of the saints, many of the martyrs show us otherwise. But regardless, we trust in God's wisdom. We entrust ourselves into the hands of a God who is faithful and who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able so that with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Whatever struggles, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever persecutions you might be facing, what Peter says, give it to God. Trust God. He's in control of all those circumstances. He's in control of the ones who's persecuting you. Just put your soul in His hands. He will always be faithful to His promises. He'll never abandon His people in their time of need. But He encourages us to draw near to His throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of difficulty. So in wrapping up what Peter is saying to these believers who are out on the battlefield of faith and some are being chewed up pretty bad. Some of them are carrying a variety of trials and struggles. He just reminds them that in the midst of that, don't be ashamed of suffering for Christ, but glorify God in His name. And remember that, yeah, you're being judged now primarily by the world, but God's in control and it's all for your purification. And whoever is punishing you or judging you or persecuting now, they one day will stand before the Lord God and things will not go well for them on that day. But don't be ashamed. Recognize that God has a purifying purpose in your sufferings and your trials now. And then finally, don't forget to entrust your souls into His hands and continue to serve Him faithful, trusting that the outcome is ordained by God. It's ultimately going to be for your good and for His glory. And when we trust in Him, then He will be our strength. When we trust in Him, and His presence will be there to encourage us and to give us strength and peace in the time of struggle. He will guide us through the maze of life because He's our faithful Creator that controls every step we take and encourages us to draw near to Him and entrust our souls into His hands. So may the Lord encourage us and may the Lord help us when we face those similar trials, is to look to Him and commit our souls to Him for the glory of His name. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we thank You, Lord, that as we live in America and are so blessed, Lord, in so many ways and experience very few persecutions compared to our brothers and sisters in other countries. We thank You, Lord, for that freedom and those blessings. But Father, we know that things can always change and get worse uh, very quickly. And we want to build our own faith by Your grace, by the work of the Spirit within us, so that whether we're just facing trials or whether we will face greater persecution, for the name of Jesus Christ, 
that, Lord, You will be our strength. That we can turn to You and not be ashamed of suffering as a Christian. That we will recognize that persecution and trials are a part of our lot in this life. And we await the glory to come. And Lord, while we are being saved with difficulty in this life through sanctification, awaiting the day of glory, help us, Father, to continually look to You to entrust our souls into Your hands, knowing, Lord, that You have a purpose behind everything that touches our life. And just help us to trust in You to find Your peace and Your joy in the midst of our struggles. And finally, Father, we do pray that if there's any here this morning who have never really recognized or come to the understanding of their sin and the day of judgment to come, oh, Father, may the Spirit of God open their hearts that they might truly see that they will one day stand before a holy God and He will be their judge on that day and they will be doomed. But Lord, today is the day of salvation that if they but repent, turn from their sin and look to Jesus Christ in faith, He has promised that He will forgive them of all of their sins. Oh Father, give them a heart to believe and turn to You that they might be numbered among Your children and have the hope of glory yet to come. So Father, thank You for Peter's instruction. Bless it to our hearts and our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.